The best children's stories aren't always just for children. You could say it about some of the Harry Potter series. You could certainly say it about a lot of the work of Philip Pullman. His best-known book here in the U.S. is The Golden Compass, part of the trilogy His Dark Materials. Now Pullman has taken on another series of tales that we think of as bedtime stories, retelling 50 fairy tales from the Brothers Grimm. Pullman is at his home in Oxford. Mr. Pullman, why did you decide to do this? Well, it was the publishers who approached me um, and asked if I was interested, and it took me about half a second to decide that I was very interested indeed because I love these stories. I've known them all my life. I used to teach them when I was training uh, students to teach, and um, we, we looked at a number of these stories and discussed them, and I found them so interesting and so full of insights and uh, wit and all sorts of interesting things that I was very glad to come back to them and and do my own versions of them. And what was so instructive uh, about these uh, stories as teaching material? Uh, Surprise. I think when when people who think they know the story of Cinderella read the original Grimm's version of Cinderella, they, they meet things they hadn't expected before. A certain degree of brutality, for example, in the punishments of the uh, of the two sisters, the two cruel sisters. The fact that Cinderella doesn't have a fairy godmother in Grimm, she has a, there's a, a hazel tree which she plants on her mother's grave. Things like that. We think we know these stories well, but we don't at all. We we've always known, I guess, that these Grimm's tales are are dark. Uh, though, as you say, there's an element to surprise because maybe we get a sweetened version of them. The way you recount them, there's a subtle sexuality on top of the brutality that I haven't really seen or even thought of before. For instance, in your telling of Rapunzel, she doesn't say to the witch, the prince is much faster climbing up the tower. Instead, she asks the witch, why are my clothes getting so tight, meaning she's (laughs) pregnant? Is this sexual side of the character something you've gleaned yourself in the tales over the years or something you decided had to happen, something you decided to add? No, that's in the that's in the original telling of the stories, as as it is in Grimm. What happened in the um, in, in the course of the history of the Grimm stories is that through the seven editions that they put out from eighteen eleven, eighteen twelve, the first one to eighteen fifty seven, the final one, was that they they got more and more prim, more and more priggish, more prudish, we might say. Why the um, the loss of Rapunzel's. Um, sexuality, so to speak, was something that's uh, attributable to the increasing piousness, we could say, of, of the Grimm's themselves. Because in the first version, in 1812, there it is in, in plain light. She was pregnant. Mm. And it's not unusual because this is a story about pregnancy. It's full of sexuality and fertility. And and also social commentary. I think of Hansel and Gretel and the whole kind of front-loading of this very depressing climate that the family is poor and they, they don't know whether to keep the kids or not. I'd for completely forgotten about that. Exactly. That's another thing that gets um, gets glossed over and forgotten about. When we're telling stories, the stories to children at bedtime, we don't want to upset them too much by bringing in the, you know, the realistic details of rural poverty in um, medieval Germany or whatever it is, so we don't, we don't mention that. But that's the reason for it, and it was, um, it, it was out of that real background, that real and very distressing background indeed for some from for many families in Central Europe at the time, that these stories were uh, were composed. And yet here you are, you're adding all the gory details back into them. Are, are these bedtime stories then? Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? Um, I, well, I, I'm happy to read them at bedtime. I think if I were reading them to children, I'd choose a story that isn't that distressing. But um, the point about these stories is they weren't just intended for children. They were intended for the whole family. 
You write comments at the end of each story, a bit of history, a bit of tracking the evolution of these tales. Do you feel there are indeed important points we've lost over time because the context has shifted or gotten diluted? Yes, I do think that was important. I I thought from the beginning that I wanted to write notes after each story, partly because um, there were things I thought it would be interesting to know, like who was the original teller of the story? Who did the Grimms get the story from? Mm. Um, I noticed on my reading of the stories that whenever I found one that was particularly neat and neatly told and uh, cleverly constructed, it was as often as not the work of a particular woman called Dorothea Feeman, who was one of their favourite tellers. I thought that was interesting to know and to pass on. The other things I wanted to talk about were I was interested in how they work as stories, why this one, for example, falls apart in the middle. Is there anything we can do to tie it together? Um, Why this one um, begins in a very dramatic way and and then tails off because we lose the... Uh, initial mo- what's happened to it so i was my notes are really there for anyone who is interested in the business of storytelling and that's why i wanted the notes close to the stories and not tucked away at the back so i had great fun writing the notes actually you make the point in your introduction that the characters in Grimm's fairy tales are conventional stock figures that there's no psychology in a fairy tale no interior life to the characters that their motives are clear and obvious it's kind of the diametric opposite of many characters in, in your own books, you know, characters that are developed in complex ways and imaginary worlds that are vivid and disturbing. So I'm wondering, was it a relief for you to work on these kind of easy stories? Yeah, it's it's a very interesting business, this difference between the folktale with its flat characters and the novel with its round characters. The the novel grew is essentially a realistic medium, and it, and it grew up in the in the last three hundred years, I suppose, um, as a way of describing society and talking about society and social relationships, which involve real figures, real rounded human beings, as, or as much of real human beings as the novelist can make them. But fairy tales don't work like that. And if you try to put a character from a great novel, Jane Eyre, say, or Elizabeth Bennet from Pride and Prejudice, try to put a character like that into a fairy tale, they'd stick out like a sore thumb. It mm. wouldn't work at all. The characters in fairy tales are flat. They're puppets. They're little stick figures. They're not um, human beings. That's one of the reasons why the stories are so quick, so fast-moving. And it was a great it was a great joy to work with characters like that. I've I've written a few fairy tales myself, and I I always welcome the the company of these these masks almost these um, like mask like characters from the Commedia dell'arte mm. uh, who have no 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 depth as you put it no no interior life, um, but they're fast moving and they're quick and they're funny and they're delightful company. Well, Philip Holman, wonderful to speak with you. Thanks a lot. Uh, thank you. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you.